Hey there, friends. Before we get to a brand new episode of the official Do Good Better podcast, we want to thank you, the listener, for subscribing and sharing with all of your nonprofit friends. Most importantly, we need to be thanking the sponsors to this very show. Hey, if you're in the market for a CRM system that makes your life easier, there is no better item in your fundraising toolbox than DonorDoc. DonorDoc is not only the premier sponsor to the show, it is the premier and intuitive CRM system that not only has everything you want, but has zero things you don't. No one needs complicated, especially when you wear 10,000 different hats at your nonprofit. So get DonorDoc and use Do Good Better at checkout and get a month free to try it out. Thanks, DonorDoc, for being an awesome sponsor. Hey, speaking of life being easier, fundraising is not... And as a listener to this podcast, I hope you found some insight and tips and tricks on how to make it a little less challenging. But if you're looking for a more content, more done-for-you templates, weekly support, and a community of other do-gooders like yourself to either commiserate, challenge, co-create, or celebrate with, join Do Good University. Hey, it's our brand new membership site. We have hours and hours of on-demand trainings, exclusive guest expert webinars, and access to the entire Do Good Better crew to answer all of your pressing questions. All of that is for an affordable monthly fee. So visit dogooduniversity.com or click the link in the show notes for details. Hey, get ready for another episode of the official Do Good Better podcast. Hey, nonprofit leader, you do awesome nonprofit things. And our friends at Pro Resources do awesome HR things. Now, why is that important? Because you have too many things to do than worry about payroll and compliance and benefits and admin and workers' comp. You've got donors to get, you've got clients to serve, and you've got a community to make awesome. So let our friends at Pro Resources help you. Go to ProResourcesHR.com. Learn about how they can help your organization not worry about all the HR things. They've got you covered. Go to ProResourcesHR.com. Let them help you be awesomer at HR while you become awesomer as a nonprofit. ProResourcesHR.com or call them at 800-776-4671. And make sure you mention Do Good Better. Get your special nonprofit rate. Welcome to the official Do Good Better podcast, where we help small and medium-sized nonprofits do good better. Join host Patrick Kirby as he chats about the latest nonprofit trends, challenges, and success stories. Plus, you'll get actionable advice to help you be even awesomer. If you're a nonprofit professional, volunteer, or supporter, this show is for you. We'll tackle all the big topics like fundraising, marketing, and volunteer management. Our only goal? to bring you the information and inspiration you need to take your organization to the next level. So grab that giant caffeinated or adult beverage and get ready to do good better. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the official Do Good Better podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Kirby. And of course, we talk with people who are going to help our small and medium-sized nonprofits do good better. What I believe you could all probably do a little better at is, well, your mission is amazing, but there's probably a lot of nonprofits in your community and to rise above the noise, there has to be involved a little bit of creativity, a little bit of thinking outside of the box. But if you can maintain that you're not doing it to be silly, 
you being it purposeful and you are you're creative with a mission in uh, mind. That takes a little bit of uh, well, takes a little bit of uh, brain power that may be outside of your scope of genius. So we bring the experts to you, my friends. I'd like to welcome uh, our guest today, uh, Rowan Van Sleeve. He is the uh, president of Hope the Mission. Welcome, my friend, to the official Do Good Better podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I got to tell you, being called an expert, I'm not. What I'm great at is stealing other people's ideas, doing exactly what your show is about, implementing them in what we do. And we exploit every idea that we can steal, give it a go. When it doesn't work, we blame the other guy that we stole it from. When it works, we parade around like we came up with it ourselves. I love that because now you've given everybody permission to do the exact same thing. And I appreciate that more than anything. Uh, before we get started, because we're going to dive into like the amazingly interesting things that you're doing at Hope the Mission. Um, but before we get started, I want to make sure that everybody gets a full picture of who we're chatting with. So could you give us a 5,000 foot view of who you are, what you do and why we're talking today? Yeah. So like you said, my name is Rowan. I'm the president here at Hope the Mission. I'm so proud of what we do. In the middle of a homeless crisis in LA, which is truly a humanitarian crisis on a scale we haven't seen before. According to our local government in the county, there's about 70,000 people who are affected by homelessness. Those of us who work on the streets, who are doing the work, we believe that number is probably closer to 100,000. And it seems to be everly, ever increasing. Every year we do a point in time homeless count and it just keeps moving forward. And hope has really emerged the past five years as one of the leading providers. Uh, we started out uh, in 09 and kind of bumbled our way through. I was one of the founding people in 2010. I came on board, put together everything nerdy, everything that people don't care about, the human resource, the accounting, and really in particular, the fundraising. Um, I had to go off, take another job so I could put a down payment on a house. It's going to shock you. Uh, you know, startup, homeless <laughs> service providers, they don't pay that well. I know Weird. it's shocking. Weird. But, you know, I came back in 2017 when we started to face some really big financial hurdles. The agency was down to about 10 days worth of cash and facing down the barrel of about a million dollars on a loan that was due in about eight months with no way to pay it. And we kind of all went out to a margarita and chatted about what the heck we're going to do. And we came up with, you know, a really aggressive fundraising strategy. And at that point, we're about a $3 million agency. We had maybe, you know, 150 beds. We're doing maybe 100,000 meals a year. Where we are today, we're the largest rescue mission in the country. We have a annual budget of about 75 million. But most importantly, we have about 2,500 beds each and every single night for people who are experiencing homelessness. And we do about 2 million meals a year. Um, and that's really been driven by a different approach to fundraising, a more long game approach, really understanding that donors are changing. And it's been a wicked adventure. And I'm really thankful to kind of be in the middle of it. By no means have we perfected it, but we're right in the middle. Um, you'll, you'll get it. Everybody listening who's listened to this podcast before is going to understand real quickly why uh, Ro and I are going to have some really fun conversations because we kind of have the same long game creativity sort of. Um, let's think and approach some of these things in real time, real time moments, adjust on the fly bits. Um, but I, I'd love to start with this um, question, I guess, is the a lot of nonprofits who are working in human services find this and fundraising in general 
very tough because you're looking down what is a seemingly impossible task to fix. So I'd love to start with like the mental hurdles you have to go over to understand, like, how do you pour so much energy effort into a homelessness issue that is like it's just spiraling in in certain cases? How do you get and and wake up with that um, that fire in your belly to go, Okay, no, no, not today. We're going to kick some ass today. This is going to be how we uh, address these issues. We're going to fundraise and we're going to do good work here, here and here without being overwhelmed on the overwhelming size of a problem. Well, you know, as we approach something that truly feels insurmountable, we look at a lot of our contemporaries and very quickly realize their worldview of it isn't ours. And it's okay. By no means are we better. By no means what they're doing is wrong. It's just not who we are. And we had to round in who we are. One of the things that I notice a lot of people do is they lean into the darkness of it. Uh, I see people send out mailings. If you don't give now, everyone's going to die on the street. You know, we need your dollars or this is only going to get worse. We're not doom and gloom people. We're really excited about the successes. So we lean in in a really positive angle. I also see a lot of times people, you know, they produce these uh these fundraising pieces, whether they're on video, whether they're uh, social media, or possibly even direct mail, and it feels a little bit like poverty porn. And, yep. you know, it, I struggle with that. I look at that and I go, this isn't who we are. We're not exploiting people in the middle of their crisis. Mm-hmm. So we lean in very aggressively on take the lens off people in crisis, put it on either myself and the founder or alternatively on people who are celebrating their successes. And it's created a positive momentum. The next thing that we realized was you need to be able to confront a grand issue with a grand mission. You can't say, we're going to house some people. You can't say, hey, we're going to go out there and we're going to feed some of the folk on the streets. So we are always talking about making homeless history. We stole that from make cancer history, right? So we're out there desperately trying to go, this is how we solve the problem. And we're going to do something innovative that no one else has seen. So a couple of years ago, in the middle of the pandemic, we launched the first tiny home villages. And we did it in partnership with the county of Los Angeles. First time it's been done in Los Angeles. And then we lent into telling that story in a really different way. We went as far as getting YouTubers to come volunteer and paint street art on all of the tiny homes with the express purpose to show this is a positive step forward in addressing a terrible problem. While others were out there going, well, I don't know if this is going to work. Well, we went, we don't know either, but screw it. Let's have a go. And we lent in with positivity and an upbeat attitude. I think otherwise, if you go in acknowledging that the problem is insurmountable, acknowledging that we actually don't have all of the answers, you're creating donor confusion. People want to bet on a winner. People want to bet on something that they go, it's innovative, it's disruptive, it's different. Otherwise, they're going to keep giving to the same people they've given to before, or more likely they'll get frustrated with what they've done before and They'll step out of the donor pool. 
we, we talk a lot about that on the podcast. Thursdays are for celebrating. We take time out of our week to remind our donors that their dollars are making a difference. And you have to do that. Otherwise, they are not going to come back. They don't think that it's making, uh, you know, sort of a difference. And again, I think what I like most about what you're talking about is that positivity doesn't mean you are ignoring the struggle of the actual issue itself. But I think if you put a positive spin on like, this is what someone did to get out of this cycle. You then humanize the actual human beings that are in this cycle itself, rather than just pointing to them as a stat. This is a person who is, this is a stat who lives on the street. This is a statistic, right? So you're humanizing through the positive uh, reinforcement, not ignoring that it's a problem altogether, which I think a lot of nonprofits don't understand. And so I so appreciate that, that particular clarity. Um, well, and I, I think saw a couple of years ago, there is a pitfall in doing this very positive thing. And right. I think it's important that you're that we're honest about that. You know, right. we don't want to sound we're Tony Robbins, it's all perfect, it's going to be great, just believe, right. because there are people dying on the streets in right. LA County, it's three to six people every single night. Mm. So we identified this a little while ago, I, I went out to dinner with a gentleman I know. He produced a pretty famous reality TV show. And I said, look, you know, I need your help. I need to tell the story because I keep being approached by reality TV show producers saying, we want to follow someone in crisis. And whether they make it out of their addiction and their homelessness or not, we want to follow it. And I just always felt it it is the worst of poverty porn. And there's no interest. And even putting the camera on the individual at that moment might change the whole dynamic of their journey to hit rock bottom and end their homelessness, end their addiction. So I said to my friend, what if you put the camera on me? What if I spent a 100 hours in the struggle acknowledging the fact that I'm dripping with white privilege? I have more white privilege than you ever will. I'm from Australia. It's like the imported foreign edition white privilege plus. Acknowledging that, acknowledging that I'm not a victim of a broken justice system, a broken healthcare system, and I'm not even truly unhoused. I'm just visiting tragedy like a tourist. So we filmed that 100 hours and we can go into how we did it. But in the space of three weeks, we saw a spike in giving of over a million dollars. And we saw an influx of new donors, new followers on social media, like we'd never seen before. And this is two years later. And I'm speaking to people in Sacramento, our state capital. I'm speaking to people who are major donors at one of our parties we threw the other week. And through that journey, they're still bringing up what we did two years ago because for some reason it hit them differently because I look like a lot of them. A lot of them are Anglo. A lot of them are full of privilege, never spent a day unhoused. And for some reason, by putting the spotlight on me, and honoring the fact that we're not exploiting someone in their crisis, it hit them differently, motivated them to give and changed their empathy quotient for the person they see lying on the sidewalk. And honestly, one of the best things we ever did. Well, again, it goes back to that relatability. You know, if you don't have an, if you don't have any sort of um, affinity for um, a homeless shelter or not in my backyard, I don't need this, or I don't see it on a regular basis, well, then you have no connection to it. And, uh, and, and connectivity to a, to an actual organization that you represent is the, that's the one thing that you have to have. 
People can have all the money in the world. They can have all the uh, the affluence, uh, but if they don't have an affinity for you, if they don't have a connection with your organization or any sort of connection to a human that's affected by what you're trying to do, it doesn't matter. They're not going to give at the level in which you need them to, or they don't have any interest at all. So I, again, it goes back to that humanization. It's not talking about them as stats. It's not talking about it as like, let's exploit and do you know poverty porn the way that you so eloquently, uh, uh, you know, sort of applied that. Um, but it's relatable now. It's like, oh, crap, I'm I am a, a job or an illness or a sickness or a, a cancer diagnosis away from being homeless. Mm-hmm. So like, what if this was me? How would I react? And what programs and services would I like to have available so that I could try to begin to you know, sort of dig my way back out and, and get back into that, you know, dignified way of, uh, of of living that we all should have. And so I to that. And again, I think maybe, you know, that creativity and that mindset shift on how you expose your nonprofit or your organization is so critical, regardless of whatever you're, you know, sort of fundraising for. Right. Yeah. Look, absolutely. What you're what you're saying, that connection is huge. One of the things that I didn't realize prior to that 100 hours in the streets was people give to people, not charities. Yes. They connect to the leader. They connect to the person who's their connection. And one mistake that I see everywhere is people build out their fundraising uh, plan with their CEO or their development director at the head. But not everyone likes me. Not everyone likes my CEO, Ken. Not everyone likes my development director. So we tried to create a cast of characters. We call it the Seinfeld model, right? You have the TV show Seinfeld. You have this big brand above it, TV show Seinfeld. And it's pretty much indistinguishable from the star, Jerry Seinfeld. But both of them have their own social media followings, their own persona. And some people will watch anything that Jerry Seinfeld's in. Some people will only watch the TV show Seinfeld. Some people really love the sidekick. Now, I'm probably the sidekick, so I was a little bit worried. I can't be Kramer. He turned out to be a racist. So I wanted to be Elaine, but I'm white, short, and balding. So I became George, right? And I've got my own social media following. There's probably a spin-off TV show in the future for me and all of this. Then you have another character. But the world's changed. So you can't have this all-white cast who's only interacting with Anglos. So we needed to build it out so it looks more akin to the United Colors of Benetton. So we introduced, you know, a young woman. She's phenomenal. Uh, She's got Hawaiian descent. We've got other people throughout there. And each of them are empowered to ask for money. Now, then, when you put that in the context of that 100 hours, People followed us for that 100 hours. And one of the clever things we did was we did a mental health assessment before we went out and then when we came back. So with all the privilege, all of the understanding that this wasn't real, no addiction, we, you know, either fooled them or it was true. The first assessment said, we've got a clean bill of mental health. We're strong. After just 100 hours, the LCSW said, it is clear evidence of mental health Um, symptoms. You've got some serious warning signs here of anxiety, depression, paranoia, all of this sort of stuff. It was so bad that I couldn't tell you the location I was in. 
I didn't know exactly where in the city I was after just 100 hours. Now, people bring that up today and they're asked, how are you? And they're worried about me personally because when we put ourselves in front and then we see the next step of that, we'll have donations be sent to Hope. It'll say, you know, Rowan in the memo line of the check or they'll payable to Hope the Mission in brackets Rowan because people give to people. And by putting yourself in that front and by having multiple characters that can be the ones that they give to, all of a sudden you open yourself up to a whole new market rather than the traditional of I'm just a spokesperson for the problem and there's only one. Only the CEO will be on the bottom of the ladder. Um, one of the th- again, giving is personal. Always has been, always will be. Doesn't matter what sort of AI technology comes in. The robots yeah. are not going to take over a relatability or an empathy between two human beings. But when you're looking at a nonprofit, you're looking at a small organization. Rowan, how do you? And maybe you're not the person that that as as somebody who's the head of fundraising. Uh, maybe you're not the person who feels comfortable putting a light on themselves. How do you train or coach up? Uh, individuals who are diehards for the mission who would be willing to be um, to be those cast of characters. How, what, do, what are you looking for in a personality? What are you looking for in an individual? And how do you coach them up to be that persona that is uh, telling the story or, or being out in public or answering questions that they might not have 100% of the answers to? What what sort of coaching or, or techniques are you in sort of letting them know is okay to go out and ask for fund or, or tell stories with? Yeah, honestly, I'm not even sure that it's limited to one or two people. Sure. Because everyone has a friend group. Mm-hmm. Everyone has a community that they belong in. So we start to look at niche markets. For example, I've got this one gentleman here. He's like a skinny TD Jakes. Um, on the side, he's a preacher. He his real job during the day is here in the office. He oversees our human resource and people department. And he has got a community that resonate with him. Now you put me in that community. It's not, they don't like me. They just don't connect with me. And then we look at the founder of this organization, Ken. Ken's one of my dearest friends in the world. Ken's fabulous. People who follow me do not follow him. And vice versa. Yeah. You know, he is asked every week to go speak to the women's group of uh, Calabasas or Sherman Oaks. And it's overwhelmingly women in their 60s and 70s. And they just have an affinity with him. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I'm asked to speak at business groups. I'm asked to speak at, you know, a more diverse um, array of people. You know, I'm a migrant from Australia and it creates a different energy with a different sure. group of people. All the way through to there's this one woman who works here. She oversees all of our training for those who are working in shelters and on the streets. She's Latina. She's got a social working degree, a master's in social work. She's incredibly well-versed in the work, and she has an audience. So I think it's less about finding a reason why someone isn't the right person, and it's finding what room are they right in. Mm-hmm. Then once you've got the right room, you start going, well, what's our story? And we've been really, really adamant in who is hope. And we've created a moniker of once you've got it, 
you've become a little bit of a Hopi. You've drunk the Kool-Aid. You're probably going to retire here, if not die somewhere in the office, because this is this is it. You're a tragic for hope. This is all you want to talk about. You live and breathe it. At that point, any room that we put you in, whether the message is spot on, the spirit of it's right. Whether it sounds different for this community or that community, the spirit of it's right. And people give to that true, genuine spirit of it. All of the right words don't need to be there. And if you make it too polished and you make it too on script, all of a sudden the genuineness goes down, the relational aspect of it goes down. So I would really focus on building as many characters who feel passionate about the organization and let them share the story in their way because it's different ways. Some of the things I say makes, you know, our CEO cringe. And he's like, how do you talk like that? And I'm like, well, I'm almost 20 years younger. I come from the other side of the planet and I live a completely different life. Now we're dear, dear friends. We're doing this bike ride next uh, next couple of days together, but we do not coalesce on our worldview at all. So we even see the problem of homelessness differently. We believe the causes of it are different, but we both agree hope is one of the solutions. Mm-hmm. I, and, and this is such a good bit of advice for nonprofits, small, medium-sized, especially who are looking to their board members and saying, boy, I don't know if they're a good fit for telling the story. Yeah, they are. All of their perspectives and different appearances and their and the ways that they've lived their lives and how they came to you and your organization is exactly what people relate to. Because if you're in the, ag- I mean, we're in, we're in flyover North Dakota, super agricultural heavy organization. So if you are an individual who is fundraising for a homeless shelter, you have to have somebody on your board that relates and speaks to that ag community. They don't have to speak very um, eloquently about the nature of local policies and procedures in downtown Fargo. No, they don't. They have to speak from a, you know, sort of a heartfelt, you know, uh, you lift up your neighbors when they have a need for help sort of attitude that they have had their entire life, whether they're farming or ranching. And that perspective and that connection is a totally different angle than you would have taken, you know, talking with a downtown community partnership about wherever they're going to have the availability of cops running through the the neighborhoods for for homeless camps. It's going to be a completely different thing, but it doesn't mean that your passion isn't the same. And the other thing that I really loved that you mentioned is niche down to what makes sense for you. You don't have to know every nuance of your programs, your services, or everything to in order to passionately talk about why you want to help. And, and whether you're a board member or not, or you're a volunteer, empower the one thing that you really understand well. And then everyone else can go, well, tell me more about this. And you're like, well, I'll get somebody who knows better this detail, this detail, this detail, because you've already sucked them in. You've re- you've hooked them. They're reeling in. And now they're just getting more and more in-depth on why they want to make a connection to your organization in the first place. Uh, look, you're so right. I'll give you the best example ever. We have this one board member who's an entertainment attorney. And as stereotypical entertainment attorney as you'll ever meet, like, I love this guy. I've got a full crush on him. I just think he's good people. Mm-hmm. We've got him and a couple of his friends who are, you know, well-to-do West Side LA sort of folk. And he's telling them about the charity. And he stops in the middle of it and he goes, 
I don't even really know everything they do. All I know is it's the real deal. And the two people that he's kind of introducing me to, a little bit later, they become donors. A little bit later, they start getting really involved. But to this day, they haven't taken the time to learn any more about the charity because they're his people. And there's something about his community. They just want to know that it's the real deal. They want to know it's working. Beyond that, they don't really care. They just Mm -hmm. want to invest their money somewhere they believe there's change and they want to know the person that they believe in. Yeah. Yeah. That it's that, that is such a great and relatable story. And it's okay. By the way, I want everybody to understand it's okay that a donor doesn't dive into the nuance of your 990s, for God's sakes. It's okay. They can be passively interested in what you do, but they can be passionate about the, the money that they give and the, the doors that they open. That is okay. One of the things that I that I find remarkably fascinating about uh, Hope the Mission is the creativity in the events and the approach that you use to fundraise. And I think a lot of nonprofits are very scared at the prospect of doing something different because it's the way we've always done it, Rowan. It can't change everything. We're going to do that gala that raises the same amount of money. We're going to raise that, do the golf tournament. We're not going to change anything because the old guard really loves that all golf tournament. But what you've taken is an approach that's radically different than doing everything everybody else has done. Please explain how you, the creativity that's not just doing it for the bells and whistles and the jazz hands. Please explain how the creativity helps, does not necessarily hurt if done methodically and purposefully for fundraising. Well, first off, I shy away from a single bottom line on fundraising. I think if we're doing it just for donor return, we get X number of dollars. We spent Y, we got X. You're setting yourself up for failure. You can't control the economy and donors are changing. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a day that you come, you get your rubber chicken dinner, you have a 45-minute presentation, you say, look, I've locked the doors, we have security, no one's getting out here until I get my money out of you. That still works. But donors are changing. Long-time donor uh, relationship is broken with that sort of response. They just slowly stop coming to your events. Mm-hmm. So we took a really different approach. Um, probably the place that it started out was we were running the LA Marathon, and it was a stilly, a really, really silly shtick. What we'd do is we'd say, look at me. I'm not designed to run. There are people that God gifted to be athletes. The universe wanted to run. The universe decided for me a more sedentary sort of lifestyle. And there's a pretty good chance I'm going to die. Now, you've got to do the math here, donor. Do you want to be at my funeral where everyone else has donated and they're looking at you? Oh, my gosh, you're an a-hole. You didn't donate before he died. And you're going to feel even tackier at the funeral donating late. And everyone got a really good laugh at it. So me and Ken would run the 26.2 miles, would struggle along, would take photos that, you know, we just looked like crap. And people who donate, it was fun. Mm -hmm. Then COVID hit. And then all of a sudden, we got hit with this reality that they were canceling the LA Marathon, which we'd done for three years at the point. And we pretty consistently raised about $40,000 doing it. You know, sometimes a bit more, sometimes a bit less. The marathon was cancelled and the need had changed. Because COVID hit, people were flooding onto the streets. 
we needed about five times as much money, around about $200,000. So I'm sitting at my desk and I'm realizing I'm an idiot because my only idea was I need five times as much money. Well, simple. You just run five marathons. That's got to work, right? And couldn't come up with anything else with COVID on. So what we did is we decided it probably about 125 miles, about you know, five marathons running back to back to go past all of our different homeless shelters, all the ones in progress from the first most northern point all the way around. So we organized this run. We were COVID safe in it. We said, look, it's in the middle of COVID. We're running on the side of the road. We're not doing anything. We invited uh, city council members to run with us, some celebrities to run with us, anyone who wanted. One day we're out there running. We have a bunch of, you know, homeless folk just running behind us it's like Forrest Gump you know like when you (laughs) starts running and people just start following but then we realized it needed to be a spectacle so we started going down the track and we kind of looked at America at the point you know this Mm -hmm. is 2020 there's the Donald Trump trucks with all the flags everywhere so we stole that idea we got a little Toyota Tacoma pickup we put nine flags on it put love and hope and all you know, we'd have people drive by honking and then realize the red and blue flags weren't Trump. And they're like, <laughs> that signal to us. I, was, I think they were saying we're the number one charity. They'll put in one figure, finger up anyway. Then, you know, we had looked around the world and there was the emergence of these really extravagant gay pride parades. So we got a 2006 Toyota Sienna and we wrapped it in sparkles and glitter and put hope down the side. So now instead of just having two guys running on the side of the road, You've got a spectacle. You've got these two idiots with a Trump-looking truck in front with all of its flags on, a gay pride van behind it, and us running in the middle. Then you'd have different people. In that event, we raised $210,000. We did it over, I think it was, I think it was 10 days or no, eight days or something like this. We had 17 TV news stories each day would be pulling up to another shelter in the middle of COVID and we'd do a press conference. Some days we'd have one camera. Some days we had no cameras. Other days we'd have five or six. And we'd say, in the middle of COVID, this is what we're doing. And we started to see donors that we'd never seen before. We got a little spot on TMZ and we saw donors from all over the country and the world. They were small donations, but some of those have stayed with us and started growing. And then we started to compound this creativity without throwing away the ideas that were working. So that event, running past all of our sites, well, we don't have any new ideas. We kind of tapped out. So we just did the same thing the next year, except we went to the lowest place in America, Death Valley, and we ran to hope all the way from the lowest place to the place where people are being housed. And it was 250 miles the exact same shtick as the original LA Marathon. Every day we'd run 15 to 20 miles, jump on the phone with anyone with dough and say, I'm probably going to die. You really should donate, man. You don't want to look like a loser at my funeral. Come on. And everyone have a laugh and they donate. And that became $400,000. And then we did it again, recycled the exact same idea. At the beginning of this year, we went to Las Vegas. We said, Building housing for to solve homelessness and building shelters feels like you're gambling. You've pushed all your chips into the center and you know if it goes wrong, you're going to lose everything. 
So we're all in. And where do you go when you're all in and you're gambling? You go to Vegas. So we went to the Strat Hotel. They sponsored us and allowed us to bungee jump off the roof and then run back 350 miles. Now, we've started to see a diminishing return. This was the first year it didn't increase. It came in at about $300,000 or so. But again, new donors, new TV exposure, because it was just something different that people could you know, sink their teeth into. Mm-hmm. What what I love about this too, and, and again, if you're listening, you're like, wow, I would really wish I had access to West Hollywood or Vegas or this. I go, yeah, you do in your own community that's going to be relatable to your own donors, to your own con- con- uh, contingent of supporters. It doesn't matter where or what it is. What Rowan's talking about is the basics of the basics. It's consistency. It is not just starting something brand new for the sake of starting something brand new. It's consistent messaging, consistent activity. It's consistent uh, fundraising. It is calls, picking up the phone and asking and inviting them to participate. This is just a lot of creativity around what is the basic necessity for a fundraiser to be successful. But it's done in a way that like, people will kind of cock their head to the side and go, I can get behind that. That's kind of interesting. I didn't know about that. But it's all the same. It's all the basics of the same. It's it's person to person, personal giving. It's personal asks. It's relatability. It's empathy. It is uh, he, the human experience. It's humanizing your organization. That's exactly what he's talking about. But doesn't mean you have to be super boring about it, too. But you got to be good at what you do, which is the fundraising in the first place. And that is making uh, particular calls. Now, and I know what you do yeah. hit there that is so key is you have to ask. Yeah. Um, yes. I, I have a tendency to get to the place where I'm like, I'm done with, you know, these blo- email blasts with the letters. I know that they're needed and I know it's that percussion, that ground game. But we talk about a blitzkrieg approach. So, yes, it's consistent. It's never ending. Yes, you're going to have that air coverage of the email, the Google ad, the direct mail. But then at some point, you're going to get a phone call from me. You're going to get a text message from me. And if a letter is coming to your house, it's going to have my sloppy handwriting on the front. I'm going to write the address. And on the back of the letter, I'm going to sign it. And I'm going to ask you something about your life. Like, how's it doing? We haven't had any yet. And they're the people who are going to give. They're the people who are going to do life with you. And what I notice, there's a correlation when you're human, all of a sudden they're coming into my office, they're seeing me online, three months after a run like this going, oh, my God, how are your knees? And it's created a mythology, right? Mm -hmm. Like people start thinking way more of me and Ken than they should. But because it's consistent and because it's constantly personalized, they're thinking, my friend is doing this. Exactly. This is who he is. Now, we're not athletes. There's a real risk that people are going to think that we're athletes. We are not. You know, some people run to compete. Some people are just trying to complete. And we're just trying to complete. Like, nobody's checking our time. And that's part of the whole joke. It's a little self-deprecating, you know, because it's not, hey, I'm good at this, so I'm doing it. It's not a, hey, I was a marathon runner or I was a high school athlete. I was none of those things, mm-hmm. but we found our shtick and yeah. we're going to keep milking that shtick until there's another one that's better. 
Yep. No, it's it's absolutely perfect. Okay. Uh, I know there's going to be a ton of people who are just like, okay, I need to figure out what else they're doing. I know that you've got a a, a marathon of a of a of a ride coming up uh, here in the next couple of days. It'll be well done before this is published. But the highlights are on your website. The videos and the and the testimonials and all the things are there. If somebody's looking to be inspired by an organization that's thinking a bit differently and thinking outside of the box and being creative and really solving a problem in a way that nobody else is. Rowan, where on earth would you find Hope the Mission and you to connect and learn more? Well, you know, obviously you can go to our website, hopethemission.org. You can follow us on Instagram. The best thing that people do, honestly, is follow me personally. It's at rvansleeve. And you'll see a lot of these fundraising things in the highlight bubbles. And you can kind of watch along. You can see how we're doing this. Please steal it. We've stolen everything else. Um, And then if you've got a question, just DM me in there. I have agencies from all over that are following us that we've shared what we've got. You know, a good example of this is a friend of mine in Fresno. They did a sock drive and they collected, uh, I think it was 80,000 socks. And they put them all on a string and broke a Guinness World Record with it. Well, we're in LA. It's a bit different market. We're a bigger agency. So we said, well, let's steal that. Let's Mm -hmm. copy it wholesale. But this putting the socks on a string just seems like too much work. So we made it designing the biggest sock sentence. And my daughter kind of took it on as her project, volunteer project for the year. She raised a quarter of a million socks. And... We posted it online. We went through the storytelling of that. We created the world's biggest sock sentence, did it out in front of BMO Stadium. But the point is 100% of that we stole from our friends in a different market. We put our spin on it. We made it probably a lot more lighthearted, a lot more self-deprecating, maybe a little cynical at some points, but it was unique to us. Anyone can do that. Anything we're doing, please, I encourage you, steal it, copy it, make it yours, do it better than us. I'd be so stoked to see that happen. I love it. We're going to drop all of those links in the uh, show notes. So as soon as this podcast is over, go follow Rowan, go follow uh, Hope the Mission, uh, go find your new fundraising idea, steal it, and then tag him in all of their, your socials and say, look what we did. I'm sure you're going to get a high five or two uh, there. And just know, I'm going to steal what you do. Like, you yeah, go and do it. I'm going to be like, that. all right, let's go. Let's do it better. I like this competition already. This makes me feel great. Rowan, a couple of things. Number one, thank you so much for what you do. This is, uh, again, one of the tougher challenges of our times. Um, and then finding a creative solution to do this and keep the momentum going about making this front and center, about uh, you know some of the action items uh, that you can take as a human being to help uh, homelessness. And uh, I, I think that's amazing. Uh, secondly, thanks so much for your creativity and your perspective today. I think giving permission to replicate and duplicate and steal it in a way that is just fantastic. Awesome. Um, But most of all, thank you so much for being a guest here on the official Do Good Better podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Fundraising is hard. And as a listener to this podcast, I hope you found some insight and tips and tricks on how to make it a little less challenging. But if you're looking for a lot more content, done-for-you templates, weekly support, and a community of other do-gooders like yourself to commiserate, challenge, co-create, or celebrate with, I want to invite you to join 
Do Good University. It's our brand new membership site. We're going to have hours of on-demand trainings, exclusive guest expert webinars, and access to the Do Good Better crew to answer all of your pressing questions, all for an affordable monthly fee. So visit dogooduniversity.com or click the link in the show notes 